Well, for those of you who would like a title for this morning's message, let me just set this on so that I don't uh, overrun too much. Uh, uh, the title of this morning's message is God's Glory in the Home. God's Glory in the Home. For those of you who might be politically minded, um, interested in politics, interested in parliament, um, you will know that at various times in the House of, House of Commons, uh, it gets a little bit disorderly. And the Speaker of the House shouts out, Order! Order! And I was thinking of actually entitling the message this morning, Order, Order, but Matt didn't think it was very good. Um, <laughs> but here, the Apostle Paul, in what we're going to talk about this morning, he's concerned about order in the home. Order in the home. Recently, as we studied uh, 1 Timothy in our RBT, we saw that Paul was concerned about order in the church. And now as we come to this part of our study of Colossians, we see he's now concerned about order in the home. So would you turn to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to read from 18 to 21. Paul writes this, Wives, Submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. If you're reading an ESV version, you'll probably see that the title of this portion of Scripture says, Rules for Christian Households. Rules for Christian households. I remember a number of years ago, June and I took a, a bunch of 25 young people, which was challenging itself, to a Christian centre in Mid Wales. And we'd hired this large bungalow. And they had all of the youth group in the one bungalow. And when we arrived there, we, 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 we went around the rooms, June and I was going around, where do we put people and whatever. And we had these rules printed up in every room, in the kitchen, in the lounge, Wherever, wherever we looked. And it was a Christian, it was a Christian site. And so all the, all the rules had a Christian aspect to it. Um, however, we thought they were a bit extreme. Thought it would be extreme. Like, when you wash and dry, please sing a Christian song. <laughs> um, when you're hoovering and clearing up, ensure you do it prayerfully. And stuff like that. And we kind of thought it was a little extreme. And then we discovered two days later that a couple of our young men had arrived earlier in the bungalow and put up these rules. We were all blaming the Christian site, but it was these rules that were put up by, by our young people. These are rules that, that they wanted us to obey, or not really because they would struggle to obey them themselves. But Paul here in this letter doesn't want to give us house rules. He doesn't want to give... Um, details of how we live our lives, but he wanted to give the church a picture and a framework for what the order of a Christian household, a Christian home, should look like. He's more concerned about the principles that establish God's order in the home than giving specific detailed rules. He's not interested in giving these detailed instructions. The new life that Paul has been teaching throughout this letter is now to be reflected in our homes and in our marriages. Paul is teaching us how to live for the glory of God in our homes. 
And this teaching is much needed in our churches today. As for many unbelievers, and sadly for many believers, or professed believers, marriage has fallen into disrepute. Earlier on in this chapter, we we looked about setting our minds on things that are above. And I would suggest our view and our values concerning marriage should not reflect the way of the world, but our views and values from God's standpoint. I read of a young girl who went to see the film Cinderella. Some of you have seen the film Cinderella. And then wanted to test her neighbour, her knowledge of the story. The neighbour was really keen to impress uh, this little girl. So she said, I know what happens in the end. The girl asked, what happened? The neighbour said, the prince and Cinderella lived happily ever after. The little girl replied, oh no, they didn't. They got married. Now, it's, it may seem funny, but sadly, that is a reflection. This innocent comment that was said by this little girl is a view that many, many people would have. And very often, you see in, in uh, various TV programs or various comedians, etc., marriage is mocked. Marriage is um, uh, um, disregarded, so many. And I'm going to say right at the outset of our study as we go into detail today, I wish that June wasn't sitting here. I wish she was in crèche this morning because I'm going to talk about what husbands do and she knows what I'm like. And I've often said when we teach about parenting and marriage, I can, t- I can speak and teach more from my, uh, my mistakes than I can, I can about my successes in both those areas. But also I want to say this, for those who are here this morning who are not married or do not have children, please don't switch off, please don't switch off. It is important that you understand the roles and the order in the home that Paul is teaching us here so that in your interaction with married couples and parents, you are in a position to support and encourage this biblical order. That when you're in the homes, you're not making comments that that contradict this. You're supporting, whether it's the the husband or the wife or the children, whatever it is, in these things that we're going to be talking about this morning. That when you come into their homes, you don't cut across the values that are being worked out in the home. So this morning, I just have two points. Uh, God's order in marriage and God's order in parenting. So first of all, let's look at God's order in marriage. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, God establishes a rule of life by which you can live together in wedlock. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. With your marriage, you are founding a home that needs a rule of life. And this rule of life is so important that God establishes it himself. Because without it, everything would be out of joint. You may order your home as you like, except in one thing. The wife is to be subject to a husband, and the husband is to love his wife. So the first sub-point is submissive wives. Here we see in verse 18, wives submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Now I'm aware in making this statement It's probably one of the most provocative statements in our world today. It's misunderstood. The leadership of men, uh, the way they've been to their wives over years, has uh, has, uh, 
created problems, but we want to walk out our marriages to bring God's glory. And two things I want us to know is first is it's not to obey. It doesn't say, wives, obey your husband. Remember when June and I got married, which was <clears throat> a few years ago, uh, some 53 years ago now, when I, I, she promised to obey because that's what was in the marriage. Some of you may have, have done that, those of you who are like me a little older. But we changed it, certainly in this church, and I said years ago to June, I release you from that and change it to submit. Because obedience and submission is two different things. Obe- obedience is an act. Submission is an attitude. And the second thing that Paul says in this exhortation, he says, as is fitting in the Lord. Paul is not making this statement in the context of the culture of the time or what is acceptable to the culture, whether it's back there or now, but as is fitting in the Lord. And it is the Lord who determines what is fitting or not. It is God himself who establishes the order for marriage, as we can see right back in the order of creation. And it was the fall that corrupted that order. If you turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, you can read it at home. You will see there the consequence of the fall. She will desire you and you will rule over her, to the, to the, to the woman, to the man. And I've heard preaching that says, oh yes, it's right for a man to rule over his wife because that's what it says. No, that's a consequence of the fall. That's not how it should be. Because of the fall, that order was corrupted. And a result of what took place there, that was the very beginning of what we commonly call the battle of the sexes or who wears the trousers, those sort of comments. It isn't. It isn't. That was a curse. That was, that was a curse on creation. And there may be some things that seem culturally acceptable upon reflection, but then in studying God's word, we realise that those things are not in line with God's word and therefore unfit for a Christian. Paul's parallel passage to this in Ephesians 5, 24 for those of you who are married, I would suggest that you, you constantly refresh your thinking from Ephesians 5, 22 uh, to, to the end. But Paul in this parallel passage reflects that the wise submission to a husband is to be a reflection and a model of Christ's submission to the church. That's Christ, church's, sorry, submission to Christ. Get that right way around. Church's submission to Christ. William Manchester, who is not a necessary, I, I don't believe he's actually a Christian, but historian said, the erasure of distinctions between the sexes is not only the most striking issue of our time, it may be the most profound the human race has ever confronted. People argue that the culture is different back there and from Bible time. Today is different from Bible times, which of course is largely true. Not just times, but the, the, uh, the background and the area of, of, of the world that Paul was living in. And therefore, as a result of the, this, these distinctives are no longer relevant. Andrew Strzok in his book Equal But Different says, both Paul and Peter feel strongly about this issue. Paul, more than Peter, 
adamantly argues for marital headship and submission. And he defends his position with powerful arguments from the Old Testament creation accounts, the model of Christ and the church, the relationship of the Trinity, a command of Christ and his own apostolic authority. This was the basis of his arguments. New Testament, Old Testament creation accounts. Paul, Paul's arguments, in whether, whether it's in Corinthians, uh, whether it's in, in, in uh, Ephesians or Colossians, is based on Genesis 1, 2, 3, ultimately. It's based on the creation account. But he says here that, uh, for Andrew Strauss said, but also um, it's based on the model of Christ and the church, the relationship there, the relationship with the Trinity and a command of Christ. So I want to look at the Trinity first because the Trinity is a a wonderful example. Most of of leadership models in our our world today are kind of boss subordinate, aren't they? Somebody's, Somebody's in charge of somebody else. That's not what this is. We don't really have models for this. But the best model is the Trinity. There is an order in the Trinity. God the Father sent the Son. The Son came to do the will of the Father. The Son goes back to the Father, sends the Holy Spirit to continue his ministry. There was an order there. There was a submission there. And and in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 28, we see there a reference to Christ to God the Father, his submission to God the Father. There is an order in the, in the Trinity, but it's e- equality. We cannot say, well, God the Father is more important than God the Son, and God the Son is more important than God the Holy Spirit. It's not levels of hierarchy in that sense. It's order. order. In other air, air examples of submission we see in the Scripture, Jesus to his parents. Jesus, God incarnate. See Luke 2, 51, he was submissive to his parents. We are taught uh, as citizens to be submissive to government, Romans 13, 1. The universe to Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27. The church to Christ, Ephesians 5, 24. Believers to God, James 4, 7. Believers to their spiritual leaders, 1 Corinthians 16, 15 and 16. Servants to masters, Titus 2, 5, and now wives to husbands. There is an order, there is a pattern in Scripture that, that becomes um, our framework, not just because he says it, but because it goes right throughout Scripture. It's a pattern. But what marital submission does not mean It does not mean the wife is inferior. It does not mean that. Wife is not inferior. Paul has already addressed earlier in this chapter equality in God. We have equality. In worth and value, it's the same. We're talking about distinctive roles. We're talking about that order. Submission doesn't mean the wife to be passive doesn't mean for the husband to rule his wife, as I mentioned earlier, the part of the curse. And that is wrong teaching. The wife is to do everything the husband demands. The wife is to enable the husband's sin. 
the wife to live with a psychologically dangerous or abusive man. It doesn't mean because she's submissive she had, that all those things are in play. As I said just now, John Piper gives a wonderful definition. We need to define submission not in terms of specific behaviours, but as a disposition to yield to the husband's authority and an inclination to follow his leadership. It's a disposition to yield to the husband's authority. It's an inclination to follow his leadership. But it's not. It's not for the husband to demand that the wife does everything he says. He's not to be there. Now, that can be challenging for ladies. That can be really challenging for wives. And by the way, we're talking about wives to husbands. We're not talking about women to all men. Okay? But we come on to now sacrificial husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Verse 19. Now, at first, that might seem the easier command. Okay, the wives are to submit, but, you know, husbands just, you know, love your wives. Love your wives. But the love that Paul is referring to here is not eros, which is romantic love, or filio, the love of a friendship, but agape love, unconditional love. It's a sacrificial love. It's the same sacrificial love that Christ had for his church. Colossians 3, 18, 19, as I said, is a shortened version of Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. As we read in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Paul expanding this exhortation for husbands to love their wives. He said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a sacrificial love. I would say that's pretty challenging as well. I find that pretty challenging. Christ died for his church. He gave himself up for her. And husbands are to love their wives with a sacrificial love. It's not to rule her, not to be a boss, not to control her or enslave her in any way, but to be, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, to be her head, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now that term head may seem a little bit, some of these, some of these things we'll go through this morning would, would, could do with a message in themselves or, or a series in themselves, so we can only scratch the surface. But just to help, some of you might find that description of the head kind of a bit, a bit strange, but the head, for the most part, and everybody sitting here, is connected to our body. Okay? It's connected. It's not distinct from the body. It's not a head over here and a body over here. And it's not in the, wife, the relationship between husband and wife. It's not the husband over here and the wife here or here or whatever. It's one flesh union with the head, with the husband being the head. And the husband's headship is based, Paul says, on Christ's headship. And we should note that Scripture doesn't say he should be the head of the wife, as I just said. Scripture doesn't say that. It's not an exhortation here to say to all you married men, you should be the head of, of your wife. And the scripture says, he is. He is. Regardless of how well he does it, he is the head of the wife. 
But the husband does not have absolute authority over the wife, only Jesus Christ does. It's Christ who has absolute authority in our lives. When we make him both Lord and Saviour of our lives. Sadly for many, Jesus is a wonderful Saviour, but he's not necessarily Lord. He needs to be Lord and Saviour. He is our head, and so it is with the husband. But that headship, that authority and responsibility should not be exercised in some boss-subordinate way, as I said earlier, but as a head to take responsibility for both the spiritual and physical well-being of his wife. In fact, I would, I would want to lay, although there is an authority aspect, I would, I would accent more responsibility. Responsibility. And all this responsibility is both shown in protecting and providing, protecting the wife and the home from false teaching and physical harm, providing for spiritual health as well as physical well-being. It's protecting and providing. It's both. And in doing so, laying your life down for your wife. Guys, you find that tough? I do. And I would suggest that as men, if we do that, our wives will have no problem in submitting. They would have no problems in doing that. Paul says here, here when he talks to them, he says, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. He says to love her, don't, don't be harsh, don't embitter your wife. And with the daily pressures, pressures of life, husbands, there can be an inclination to take out their frustrations on their wives. To speak harsh words. Cast disparaging looks. Now June often thinks I'm casting disparaging looks when I'm not. What was that look about? Well, <laughs> I just wasn't thinking really. I was anyway. But to get cross, to become impatient, irritable, quick to find fault. Well, hands up for me. <laughs> I can't. She's sitting here, so I can't. it's true of me. It's true of me. But Paul says this is contrary to the Lord's will, and he warns us as husbands against us. I mean, we would like to excuse ourselves, wouldn't we, and say, we have cause. If only you knew how difficult my day has gone, you would understand my harshness. Or I come home and I say things to June, how difficult perhaps something has been or challenging and I'm moaning and complaining. And, and, and June said, what's going on in your heart? Oh, don't ask me those questions right now. It's sin, I know it is, but let me complain a little bit longer. Let me get it out of the system and then I'll repent. No, but, but she won't let me do that. Um, but but we, we, you know, we, we can think, well, if you only understood what's going on, you would understand my harshness. But what was really happening, and many of you, if you're doing the Real Change book, will come to understand this in, uh, a little bit deeper. But it was happening, the, the heat, the threat of uh, coming against our idols and our, our desires and the things that we, uh, we so want in our life has put the pressure on our hearts. And what happens is out pops the sin. Those situations didn't make the sin. Those situations put pressure on the heart and revealed the sin that's there. And when that happens, 
and it will happen. If, if any, any of you men, I'm going to fresh out, any of you men don't identify with this and you think you do it all, all right all the time, please come and talk to me. Come and help me because I could do some help with this. But when we do this, when this happens, let's not get condemned. And I've said when, not if. When it happens, let's not get condemned, but let's go to the cross. Let's apply the gospel into our lives. Let's repent and ask for grace to, for, to grow in areas of godliness in these sin. Peter O'Brien, writing about the love the husbands are to show their wives, writes, this is not a matter of affection, affectionate feeling or sexual attraction. Rather, it involves this unceasing care, a loving service for her entire well-being. It's is a love that is sacrificial, that disregards itself, which is defined by Christ's action. Jesus disregarded himself, went to the cross. Who did he go to the cross? Did he go to the cross for himself? He went to the cross for you and I. And it's that, that sacrificial love that many of us are called to, husbands. The desire for many of us who are married is, is for happiness in our marriage. And we might seem that that's a good goal for our marriage, happiness. Happiness in our marriage, that's the goal. I would suggest to you that is not. God would have holiness in our marriage as the goal for our marriages. And I believe holiness in our marriages will bring about happiness. But you could have domestic happiness without holiness. I could point to you a lot of people who have a real happy, domestically happy marriage, but God is not glorified. Someone once said, in paraphrasing the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which some of you would know, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, is the chief end of marriage is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What a challenge that we have both as wives and husbands. But this, before we move on to our second point, I want to say this, this is a challenge that God gives to the wife and God gives to the husband. It is not, and I stress not, it is not for husbands to tell their wives to submit and it is not for wives to tell their husbands to love them and lead them in the home. It's God who does. It's not for us to be confronting husbands' wives. This mandate is from God himself. You know, the world often talk about, when we prepare couples for marriage, we talk about this, give and take in marriage. That's a good thing, isn't it? Give and take in marriage. That's all the world says. That's not biblical. That's not biblical. The scriptures tells us that, that, that marriage is, is in a different way, always giving. The wife submitting and the, and the husband laying down. Scripture tells us the wives in their respective roles service, serving their spouse for their good and to see the glory of God in the home. That is the mandate from God. And John Piper says this, God patterned marriage purposefully after the relationship between his son and the church, which he planned from eternity. And therefore marriage is a mystery. It contains and conceals a meaning far greater than what we see on the outside. What God has joined together in marriage is to be a reflection of the union between the Son of God and his bride, the church. 
Those of us who are married need to ponder again and again how mysterious and wonderful it is that we are granted by God the privilege to image forth stupendous divine realities, infinitely bigger and greater than ourselves. In essence, he's saying that marriage is not just kind of a good example that Paul throws in there. Paul says it's a mystery, mystery that's been hidden, hidden from the very beginning, but now uncovered, now revealed through the presence of Christ and the church. But our very marriages are not for us, it's for his glory. Our very marriages to, to reveal the relationship between Christ and his church. Now, not so long, we're not going to spend so long. Now I want to turn to parenting. Uh, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I did think at this point, perhaps we should contact the children's workers and say, can you have all the children in now? We, we need all the children. They, they need to hear this. Um, uh, children obey. But actually, out of all the areas that we're talking about, this, I think, is one area that, as parents, we need to hear. That in our home life, it's important as parents that we teach our children to obey and ensure over a period of time they come to understand why. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord. One thing as parents we don't have to teach children is disobedience. It is, it is not, it's not something we have to strive for. Those of us who have had children, uh, have had children or have children will know that, that even a no or shake of the head, uh, um, Chris, will, will happen to Bethany within the very fu- near future. Uh, it's not long to see a child disobedient. Andreas Kostenberger said, it's critical that parents teach children the importance of obedience. Parents who neglect to hold their children accountable for rendering obedience foul them and they do not help them along the path of Christian discipleship of which obedience is a central component. You know, children are not slaves. They're not owned by parents. You don't own your children. Parents have been entrusted by God to them, to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We are raising them ultimately not for us, not for this world, but for God and eternity. J.C. Ryle in his book, The Duties of Parents, and if you haven't got a book on parenting, I think this is the best book. It's not, not particularly large. It's the best book I've ever read on parenting. And what I love about it is it's absolutely riddled with scripture. But he, he says this, you must not wonder that men refuse to obey their father in heaven if you allow them when children to disobey their father who is on earth. It is important that we strike a proper balance between disciplining them, loving them, nurturing and supporting them. And this balance will change as they grow up, as they go through the years and good parenting I would suggest you good parenting takes them from obedience to good counsel. Obedience, you don't have a choice. Bethany, you don't have a choice. Later on, as they grow older, you teach them to seek good counsel. So as they become older, they 
will, will, will receive your counsel. And that will help them to receive God's counsel. That will help them to receive your pointing to God's counsel. It will change. But that's the change, I think, that we need to walk through. And then gracious fathers, finally. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Paul is giving warning to fathers, and I believe in can in some measure include mothers, but primarily he's saying here it's fathers who have the responsibility under God for their children. And to be careful not to abuse or misuse that responsibility and that authority. He's saying here that misuse of this responsibility, misuse of this authority can bring about in a child discouragement. You know, as parents, we're not, we're not trying to break them in like you're breaking a horse. Here's a child, you know, got to, got to break this. It's, it's, it's parenting and raising a child to adulthood. Let's say take 18 years. Some might dispute that figure, but let's, that's the time of adulthood. It takes a long time. And please, can I say, please don't tell your children. You know, when you're 18, you can do as you like. You're, for a Christian parent, I'm, how old am I? I'm 76. I can't do what I like. You can't do what you like if you're a Christian. So why say to a child, you can do what you like when you get to 18? That's not a good way of doing it. That was just throwing that in. But all of us are born the sons of disobedience. And we don't break that disobedience by overbearing harshness and a multitude of rules. How does God deal with us? He deals with us in grace. How should we deal with our children in grace? And that is a challenge at times. I know. I've had three of them. In saying, do not provoke, Paul is saying as parents, we should avoid everything that may ruin a child's confidence in God and leaves them feeling hopeless and discouraged. This will require wisdom, a knowledge of God's word, prayer, and don't just pray with them, but pray for them. Accountability, by that I mean getting help, involving others. Isn't it a village that raises a child? Getting others. And can I say this also? Demonstrate, demonstrate, allow them to see how you deal with repentance when you get it wrong. Most of the, the children's sins that we see as adults will be reflected in our own lives. The scribbling on the wall is not what John does now, <laughs> or I do now. But the same thing behind it can be going on. And to help our children to see and demonstrate how to deal with things when we get it wrong. Our task in parenting is, I would suggest, twofold, to dazzle them with Jesus and teach them and show them by our example their need of a saviour. Two things. How wonderful Jesus is and your need of a saviour. There's obviously a lot of other things, but those two things, if we can hone in on that, I think we'll be raising our children for the glory of God. As I said earlier, I think we're, we're not really, I have to think when we talk about raising children, I think we're, we're raising adults. <laughs> we're, not, we're not raising them to be good children, but ultimately we're raising them to be God-fearing, God-glorifying adults. See that process. And, and the main difference is that when they're little, we teach them the same truths. We teach them in a way they can understand. But please don't teach, the, teach thing, children things that 
when they get older, you say, well, actually, it wasn't quite like I taught you there in the Bible. It's this. See a progression in the teaching, not a difference that suddenly they've come to an age. And uh, it's different. So in avoiding provocation, don't make so many rules. Have so many rules that they can't help but fail. And then they think they're failures. Use wisdom in the rules or the things that you're applying in the home so that when there's disobedience, you draw it into the act of disobedience. But if you have so many, um, you know, you could ask Rachel, she, she will tell you how. <laughs> but don't provoke by being impulsive, erratic, inconsistent in your discipline. And please don't discipline in anger. Remember, it's, 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 it's discipline. It's, it's not punishment. God disciplines the sons he loves. Grace and love to our, shown to our children doesn't mean let them to do what they want, but it is a manner to deal with in which we see our Heavenly Father discipline us. How does he discipline you and me? Grace, love. Let us learn as fathers from our Heavenly Father. He doesn't punish us as our sins deserve, but he disciplines, the scripture says, the sons he loves, the daughters he loves. And it's always done in love and grace. That's our example as fathers, as mothers as well, where appropriate. Finally, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, God gives you Christ as the foundation of your marriage. I'm going to say, put in their family. Welcome one another, therefore, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Don't insist on your rights. Don't blame each other. Don't judge or condemn each other. Don't find fault with each other, but accept each other as you are and forgive each other every day from the bottom of your hearts. Husbands to wives, wives to husbands, children to parents, children to children, um, parents, parents to children. Welcome one another. Therefore, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. If you're like me, I mean, this is challenging to actually have this. I don't know why Matt suggested I did it, but uh, if you're feeling challenged this morning, don't be condemned. Don't be condemned. Your failure in this area doesn't negate your salvation. And God's love for you. But it does mean that we need, where we identify it, go to the cross, repent, and seek more of God's grace to help us in these areas. Wife, submit. Husbands, love. Children, obey. Gracious fathers. Those things will bring about God's order and God's glory in our homes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that has taught us over recent weeks and months about our new life in Christ. Thank you now that we can say with confidence our lives are hidden in Christ. Lord, forgive us when, as fathers, as husbands, as wives, as children, when we fail. 
Lord, would you grant us grace to grow in these areas, not for our happiness, not so that we just have a more pleasant life, but Lord, ultimately for your glory. Would your glory be seen in our home, in our homes? And Lord, would it grow in its measure? And we can only do that with your grace. So we ask, Lord, for grace upon grace. Amen.